Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight to the glory of your name. Bless the preaching of this word, Lord, to the good of all. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, the New York Times published a story called The Secret Lives of Hotel Doormen. And it really featured this, this one doorman by the name of uh, Gary Sykes, who works at the, maybe still works, at the Thompson Hotel in, in Chicago. And, and it was a story really about what's become in the age of Uber and Airbnb and Yelp, you know, something of a dying profession, that of the hotel doorman. And it described this man, Gary Sykes, as really a master of his profession, a master especially of multitasking, gifted with the ability to, you know, all kind of in, in one move, you know, hail a cab, call a valet to handle luggage, make a restaurant recommendation to people heading out for dinner. You know, Charlie Sykes is a very good doorman, but, but actually, when you read the story, what makes him great is not his ability to multitask. There's, there's another quality to this man that, that I think separates probably the good doorman from the great one, and that's not just his activity, it's his awareness. This man possesses an almost superhuman awareness of everything going on around him. Uh, he, an, an awareness that, that has him just sort of automatically scan the back seat of a cab that, you know, cab door that he's op after do opening the door, seeing, you know, if, if a mobile phone has been left or if a glove or a scarf is in the back seat. You know, an awareness that enables him to greet people by name he's never met before by a quick glance at the luggage tag. An awareness that attunes him to pay attention when he hears someone mention an anniversary or a birthday so that there's a bottle of champagne or a gift bag waiting in the room before the guest even enters it. He's not merely active, he's aware. That's what makes him great. We're continuing in Mark, and we're in Mark, you know, wrapping up Mark 13, and this has been one of the more challenging chapters of the Bible. Uh, Jesus is, has been telling his followers about, you know, not just troubling times ahead, but terrible times. Um, a time when he says, you know, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And, and when you hear about that, you know, the natural question as a human being is to, is to go, well, what are we supposed to do? What do we do when that time comes? And the surprising answer, and it's one we're looking at this morning, has not so much to do with what we are to do, but how we are to be. Not so much about our activity, but our awareness, awareness to the things of God. So Jesus explains this in two parables, which we'll look at this morning, um, parables that call his people to relish God's sovereignty, respond with service, and then finally rest in the saving grace of Jesus. Now, before we get to the parables, I think it's really important, it's vital to understand that both parables are framed within a you know, an assumption of the sovereignty of God. Um, and since that reality is, so much, is not so much explained here as it is assumed, I think it's worth taking a little bit of time to, to talk about what we mean when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. You know, on, on the one hand, 
you know, in its simplest terms, to speak of the sovereignty of God is simply to contend with the reality of who God is. You know, what it means that He is the eternal God, the Lord of all. Uh, it is to affirm what the Bible affirms everywhere, that there are no other gods, there are no competing powers, there, there's nothing that God sort of has to navigate around or defer to or compromise with in order to achieve His perfect will. Um, and, and of course, the implications of this are massive because at, at its heart, you know, it means on the one hand that we don't live in a capricious universe of chance outcomes. Um, and on the other, it means that we aren't captive or subject to human will. As, as Job put it, after Job had been through quite a bit in chapter 42 of Job, he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So it, it, it means that we don't have to sit on the edge of our seats wondering how everything will turn out or worrying if or when someone or something might come along and knock God off his throne. We are sustained, governed by, and cared for by a good and sovereign God. And because we all contend with the reality of evil and with tragedies, you know, of course this can be a really challenging thing to embrace. But, but, but it's important to know that the Scriptures are full of acknowledgement of those very challenges, full of people wrestling with difficult-to-comprehend, painful contingencies of life, unanswered questions, uh, questions that on the one hand are span the globe and the universe, you know, questions like the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You know, and also questions that are quite personal, you know, that the kinds of questions that, you know, you may be asking when your head hits the pillow at night, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Those struggles are real and they're in the Bible. <laughs> and yet, everywhere there is this assurance of God's sovereignty. You know, Psalm 75, when the earth tatter, totters and all its inhabitants, it is the Lord who keeps steady its pillars. Or from Psalm 103, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His, righteous, his righteousness to children's children. The Lord has established His thrones in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. And, and look, undoubtedly there are folks right now who are struggling with heavy, wrenching, inexplicable stuff. So, you know, I certainly don't expect to quote a few Bible verses and make a few theological statements and expect those to just sort of disappear, okay? So if that's where you are, you know, we're here to wrestle with this together. But I think, so I think it's really, really important to consider, you know, as we wrestle, um, a question that isn't separate from those struggles but is part of them, and that is to ask ourselves, what kind of rule have we embraced? What kind of rule have we accepted? You know, what sort of order do we imagine ourselves to be living and moving and having our being in, right? To what do we attribute as the cause for why things happen in the way that they do? You see, it seems to me that no one really actually rejects the concept of sovereignty. The only difference is that to which we ascribe it. Do, do, do we ascribe what we deal with in life as merely, you know, the cause of living under the rule of a random cosmos that occasionally lashes out at us? 
Do we, do we ascribe it to the supremacy of human institutions, to our political arrangements, to the economy and the markets, to our own psychology, our family background, something else? You know, what are we saying is sovereignly ruling over my life? And, and so, like, like all biblical truth, this doctrine of sovereignty becomes something of a test for us. And if we're honest, you know, and I'll just be the, the first to confess it, it's a test I fail with regularity, and that is simply this, believing in God. I don't, I don't do that as much as I should. I fail in that. And I don't mean just saying I believe in God. I can check that box with the best of them. I mean functionally, in the moment, right now, in the joys and in the sorrows, believing in God in such a way that it contours my thinking and my actions and my will. Actually, you know, examining whether or not I believe that God is in fact God. Or do I functionally regard him as, as one of the many powers and influences at work in the world in which I live? I once heard a story of a pastor who had preached about the sovereignty of God in a sermon. And, and you know, and kind of like Greg and I do, we preach and then we kind of go to our seat. And, you know, and he, you know, when we're done and everybody's milling around and someone came over to him, one of his elders, and said, you know, I just want you to know that there's a couple here who lost their child this week uh, by a late-stage miscarriage. And the pastor was flushed with shame, full of regret, wishing that this week of all weeks he had preached on something else. And then the couple came to him. And before he even had a chance to extend a word of condolence, they reached out to him and they said, thank you. They told him that they were comforted to know that even though they are brokenhearted and couldn't understand why the Lord would allow such a thing, that this was not meaningless. That it wasn't the lashing out of a cruel and random universe. And even though they couldn't see or understand or comprehend, they could know that in fact the Lord reigns and loves his own. You see, the Bible not only states the fact that, is, that God is sovereign, but in fact, those who are going through the worst of times savor that truth. But aside from everything else, a truly excellent reason to love the sovereignty of God is because Jesus does. Uh, it's a striking thing that Jesus, fully cognizant of what awaits him on the way to the cross, moves not away from an embrace that God is in control and ruling and reigning over all, but instead it causes him to rely on that truth and to relish it all the more. He leans in to the knowledge that God is actually fully in control. And, and I get into that because Jesus teaches these parables with that understanding, uh, with the times of which he speaks, which are truly terrible. In all times, he wants us to know for you know, as a fundamental truth that all of it is owned by and governed by the Lord. And you see that in the manner in which Jesus describes the time to come. He says these are times that will be characterized as, in terms of what's going on, as hidden, as, as unknown, as veiled, which is a simple way of saying to his people, you are not going to fully comprehend it all. You're not going to fully understand it all. You won't be able to speak in any specific way about the timing of these things. You won't be able to speak comprehensively about their significance or the meaning of what's happening. You know, it's very much the, prof the position of the prophet Habakkuk who stood on the precipice of being under, uh, you know, overrun 
by the Babylonians to be taken into captivity. And he cried out to the Lord, you know, basically, what the heck is going on? And the Lord said this, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In the same way, the significance of the time Jesus speaks of, he characterizes as a time in which, a time that will be hidden. The meaning of it will be hidden from human beings, from the angels in heaven, and wildly, Jesus says, from the Son himself. Now, that's a challenging idea. I thought Jesus knew everything. And yet, you know, here Jesus says, well, there's something that I too don't know. Uh, you know, and rather than letting that reality wreck your trust in Jesus' divinity, I think this instead calls us to reckon with the beauty of the triune God and the relationship of the Son to the Father, especially. That there is a relationship within the Godhead in which there exists an eternally trusting, freely submissive, delighting in the, the love of the Father toward the Son. Jesus embraces that as the most important thing, more important than knowing everything. And that stuff can be really tough for 21st century Westerners, Americans like us, because we tend to have this default posture that, you know, absolutely everything must be known by me. And if there's something that's unknown, well, not only can it be known, but it should be known. You know, if there's knowledge to be had, I've, I must attain it as, to, as central to, to the task of controlling my destiny. So that to have any knowledge hidden from me is tantamount to being, you know, demeaned in some way. Like, how dare you, sir, suggest that I cannot know? But in some way, you know, we have to acknowledge as mysterious uh, that even Jesus doesn't have this knowledge. And I want to say not because he can't, but because he esteems trusting in his Father as the greater gift than knowing everything. Delights to entrust it to the Father. Give it away. You see, at the heart of the character of Jesus is this, a delight in submitting to the will of the Father and indulging in the freedom that comes with fully entrusting himself to his good and gracious will. Jesus loves that more than anything. And what ensues from that posture of wholly entrusting oneself to God's will isn't apathy, insensitivity, inactivity, but in fact an enlivening to the purposes of God. So, so right on the heels of saying that only the Father knows the day and the hour, Jesus says this, be on guard, keep awake. And to explain this, you know, I think it's helpful to begin with the second parable first, a parable about a man going on a long journey, leaving the running of all his affairs to his servants. This is, this is really the picture of a man who's the head of a great estate with lots of things going on, with lots of uh, employees, you know, who, who have a part in the thriving of that place, but Jesus, is zero, Jesus zeroes in on, on one person in the estate as critical to all of it, the doorkeeper. You know, for all, for all the kinds of people entrusted with all the tasks to running the estate, to working the fields and caring for the animals and the carpenters and the cooks and those who care for children, you know, he, he zeroes in on the doorkeeper because the doorkeeper's different. The doorkeeper is called to a vocation that necessitates an alertness and a readiness for whatever may happen to come his way. You know, for whatever's thrown at them. 
as critical to the thriving of the entire estate, whether it's deliveries or visitors or strangers or criminals or whatever, you know, kind of hits the front door of the great house. You know, this is the occupation that requires readiness for anything. You know, that necessitates being on guard and staying awake. And that's the, that's the uh, profession that Jesus applies to his followers. Just be ready for whatever. You know, if the doorkeeper drops his guard or falls asleep, it could mean disaster for the entire enterprise. So, you know, guests might not be received. Goods may go undelivered. A thief might slip in. But the awake and attentive doorkeeper is competent and aware enough to handle all of it, even though the master of the house is absent. And the, even though every day brings with it, you know, a measure of uncertainty. But here's also what's critical, what makes him competent to handle the uncertainty of each day and not knowing what may show up at that door is the master's instructions and the certainty of his return. Now hang on to that picture of awareness and intent, attentiveness for a minute as we look to this other sort of parable that, you know, I want to call it a mini parable, this parable of the fig tree. Um, now, when Jesus says to learn the lesson of the fig tree in verse 28, it's, it's tough not to remember what has happened just very recently in chapter 11 when he taught another parable about a fig tree, which involves him coming upon an actual fig tree, seeing um, that it's not bearing fruit, and he curses it right down to the roots. You know? And we, we pointed out at that time, that was Jesus' only destructive miracle. And, and, and if, if you were here when we looked at that story, you might remember that we said, you know, this wasn't Jesus having a temper tantrum. This was Jesus teaching. Um, and what was he teaching about? Well, looming over this whole section of Mark is this reality of the temple. And Jesus' act of destroying the tree in chapter 11 had to do with reality of worship in the temple. And, and when we were looking at that event, we saw that, you know, when Middle Eastern fig trees start to produce leaves in the summer, even before it's fig season, the, fruitless one, the, fruit, the fruitful ones produce these little early figs, barely edible, that grow kind of behind the leaves, most of which fall off with ever, without ever ripening, so that when those little figs show up behind the leaves, they're a sign of good things to come. If the, figs, if the first figs are there, the fat and juicy ones aren't, aren't far behind. But when they're not there, when they're not there, you've got a tree with all the signs of life, but with no hope for fruit. And that's what Jesus has come across. Looks good from far away. You get up close, you pull back some leaves, you realize this is a, a diseased fruitless tree. So, so Jesus is showing that what is true of the tree has become true of the temple. You know, it looks good from far away. Looks like good fruit's coming, but you get up close, you take a good look at it, you find out it's diseased, it's dying, it's fruitless. So when Jesus curses the tree, all he's doing is accelerating the inevitable. The tree is already diseased. It's already dying. It's going to dry up and wither away anyway. So Jesus just makes the inevitable immediate. It's kind of a weird thing about trees. We've got some cottonwoods back here that we're going to take out, I think, pretty soon. They look alive. They're, in fact, not. They're dead. We're accelerating their inevitable end. So it might surprise you, especially if you think of Jesus as one of the great religious figures in history, to know that, he's, that no one challenges religion more than Jesus. You know, and, and to put a finer point on it, no one challenges a form of religion that looks thriving and alive, even though it's diseased and dying. 
The fig tree is emblematic of what a certain kind of religiosity can produce. You know, on the one hand, looks good from far away. Lots of activity, lots of piety, ceremony, outward beauty, you know, as well as what it fails to produce. You know, it's failing to make room for the sinful, the struggling, and the unbelieving, the nation, so that they would come to know the grace of God. Now, this chapter opened up with the disciples looking to this very temple, saying, man, look at that thing, the architecture, the activity, the, the place it occupies in this city and its history and its culture and everything. And yet, you know, Jesus says it's just diseased, it's dying. And shockingly, he's, he's just said it's going to be destroyed because it's not bearing fruit. So, you know, when he talks about the fig tree, he's recalling all that. He sticks with that lesson. You know, I imagine so that it wouldn't be lost on his people. And I, I don't know you know, what you imagine to be a threat to the church, you know, whether it's scandal or division or heresy or perceived threats to religious freedom or something else. But what I can tell you is what Jesus identifies as a serious threat. And, and that is our tremendous capacity as religious people to create places with all kinds of things going on that look fruitful when in fact it's all dead. He challenges that as the great threat. Busy but prayerless, concerned with morality but merciless, rule-keeping never repenting, polite but not hospitable, together in the same place at the same time but never sharing lives, never bearing one another's burdens, never really and actually loving one another. Jesus says that's the threat. Upholding orthodox biblical teaching but with no room for skepticism, no patience for doubt, no sympathy or solidarity with those who don't believe like we do. All of it religious, none of it relishing the gospel, none of it relying on the Spirit. That kind of religiosity earns the curse of Jesus. Like enough of the sham, enough fruitfulness, die dead to the roots. And so here we are again, with Jesus bringing up the fig tree, telling his disciples to learn the lesson. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. And certainly, that includes the lesson I've just reviewed in chapter 11. It's, it's not about less than that, but now we see it's actually about more than that. Because here in chapter 13, even as he's urging us to remember the fruitless fig tree, he's encouraging us to think about another kind of fruit tree that he's inviting us to compare the two. The first fig tree was in full leaf without figs. It was a fig tree that showed what wasn't coming. There wasn't going to be any fruit from that tree. But notice here that Jesus is talking about really another kind of fruit tree. He describes it. He says, uh, one in which the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves in such a way that you know summer is near. Jesus is essentially describing a recently dormant fig tree that's just starting to come to life. That, that tree... Um, you know, it's, it's not like the first fig tree. It's not yet in full leaf with fruit apparently around the corner. That tree we, we've seen is emblematic of what's not coming. This tree is different. This recently dormant tender leaf fig tree is emblematic of what is coming. Good things. You see, the first tree looked fruitful but was dying and fruitless. This tree looks weak and maybe even a little bit sick, but it's actually alive and fruitful. And I think... It is to say that on the one hand, we can think that there's life 
where there is, in fact, death, while in the other, we can despair thinking that there's death when there's, in fact, life. <laughs> That's the comparison. So how are we to tell the difference? I think by doing what Jesus told Peter to do after he saw the cursed fig tree for the first time. Have faith in God. Trust in his sovereign grace. Trust him to be at work to bring life and fruitfulness where there may appear to be only death. Know that there's something better than knowing everything, and that is knowing God, knowing his character, knowing his person. Embrace his person and his work as that which is greater even than our knowing everything. Do what the great Reformed Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon urged when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Just before this, Jesus said that when his, when his people were enduring the worst of troubles, their hope would be in remembering that I have told you these things beforehand. And, and he's saying that same kind of thing here, but maybe in a more, even more powerful way, so that even as the whole creational order, heaven and earth, you know, pass away what will never pass away, what lives and bears fruit, even as everything around it appears to be dying and destroyed and dead, is God's word. Is his faithfulness. That never passes away. That can be trusted. And look, there's a lot going on in the world. I've talked to not one, but two people this week who said, I haven't watched the news in over a year. You know, I just, I just don't want to know. I'm done. There's a lot going on. A lot of it inscrutable. Much of it discouraging. Much of it vexing. And yet, with all that's going on, we can always rely on the rising of the sun, the sky staying in place, the ground being solid under our feet, the earth running its orbit, right? And yet, I want to notice that Jesus says here there's something more reliable even than that, more trustworthy, more secure, stronger, so that even when those things which look to be unassailably reliable, like the rising of the sun and the skies and, the, and all the rest, begin to look shaky and unreliable and temporal by comparison, he says his word will never pass away. More reliable than all of that stuff. Jesus calls us to that trust that endures and will never die, believing in God, relying on his holy and perfect will. That is an excellent reason to come to church, by the way, to be reminded of that. So he describes this dangerous and tenuous time to come, one in which that which is central to life crumbles and fall apart, falls apart time in which people will be scrambling for security and safety. And Jesus doesn't say, don't seek safety and security. He tells them, in fact, where to find it in God's word and his promises and his person. It's worth noting that not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times in this passage, Jesus says, stay awake. And certainly he's speaking of a time that will for his people, you know, um, that will, that will come for his people after he's gone to the Father, but he's also, I think, speaking of a time which is imminent, of a time when he is going to the cross. Very shortly, he'll be with his disciples in Gethsemane, about to be handed over and crucified, with his soul sorrowful even to the point of death, asking them to do just this thing. Stay awake. Pray. And in that time, not unlike the man going on the journey, Jesus goes away overwhelmed, to be with the Father, to pray with Him. And when He comes back, 
Thankfully, they had all stayed awake. No. They were all asleep. And he, and he asked them, kind of pleaded with them, why, why can't you stay awake for just an hour? And he urges them to stay awake and pray lest they enter into temptation. And he tells them that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he goes away to pray again. And certainly this time, they will have taken the lesson and they will have stayed awake. And he comes back and guess what? They're asleep. It is hard to fathom a more gutting disappointment. But what I want to pay attention to is it didn't deter Jesus from going to the cross for them, for, for me, for you. Jesus went to the cross for a failed, faithless, fruitless people because his faithfulness is greater than our failures. His salvation is stronger than our steadfast. His sovereign grace sustains us even as we fall apart. It's striking to me that a common way of talking about dying in the Bible is falling asleep. And the reason it's described that way is not to, you know, sort of, you know, create a metaphor so we don't have to say the word died, but it is because when we understand the greatness of Jesus' saving work applied to his people and the reality that he has, in fact, conquered the last enemy of death, giving us life that extends beyond the life, even death becomes, for those in Jesus Christ, nothing more than a sleep from which we will awake in newness of life. A dear friend of mine, pastor friend of mine, recently lost his wife. They had just retired. She had what she thought was a minor medical issue. They went to the doctor and received a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And they prayed. They cast themselves upon the care of a sovereign and gracious God. They asked for healing. They understood that that healing would come in one of two ways either with healing in this life or through the healing of Jesus taking her home. Three months after the diagnosis, she died. And my friend would tell you to this day that he didn't like that answer. He would tell you to this day that he doesn't really fully understand it. He would tell you um, that, you know, he hopes one day that he will. And his wife asked her to do his funeral ask him to do her funeral. And in her last days, as she was on her deathbed, he asked her, you know, what would you like me to say to the people who come to your funeral? And she told him to tell them this, God has taken nothing away from me. Nothing. And that, my friends, is a testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus that we fail in our commitments and in our faith, and we all come to fail physically, but he never does. He is faithful to the end and beyond, and he may not give us all the answers in this life, but we will know that, his, we will know that faithfulness even when we fall asleep in death, we see that every promise of God in Jesus is yea and amen, that we lose nothing. And then indeed he is, as he has said, as he calls us to remember with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for the greatness of the gospel. Thank you for the good news. 
we are deeply needful of it. And you have ordained this table so that we would not only be hearers of it, but doers of it. That we would not only be, you know, those who hear preaching, but that we would participate uh, here at your table to partake in that which would viscerally remind us. This, this outward sign, this outward seal, Lord, that we would be impressed upon the certainty of the truth of your promises. Even when we don't know all the answers, we know the most important answer, that you reign, that you rule, that you are faithful, that you are working all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes in, in Christ Jesus. Lord, that is the great assurance. And so, Lord, would you attend to us as we come here and remind us of the greatness of the gift of Jesus who sustains us to the very end so that we too could say, whatever may be taken from us, we are always those who can say, nothing has been taken because we have you. We have been made rich. And so, Lord, would you uh, feed us at this table? We pray, attend to us here. Um, Help us to be well-fed here to the end, that you would get glory in our life and the joys and the sorrows, and that we would love one another deeply from the heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.